Southern Skies. Online Media. and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode number 60 of the program that looks at the world of aviation from an Australia-Pacific point of view. Well rested and back in the saddle here in the studio after our odyssey to Avalon, I'm Steve Vischer and with me as always is the man who wore out at least three pairs of shoes over that week, it's Grant McHeron. G'day mate. Hey mate, how you going? Not too bad mate, I tell you what, uh, it was. Uh, it took a little bit of uh, setting up in here again in the studio to get everything uh, back and set up again and uh, getting all the dust out. It's a dusty place down there at Avalon at the best of times. Yeah, if it's not mud, it's dust. Yeah, I'll tell you what, between that and uh, you know all my uh, sunburn flaking off, it was uh, rather nasty in here mate, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> oh my, yeah, I think I'm glad I haven't come over to your uh, studio for a while mate. Yeah, there's a bit of a disaster area in here, well as you know at the best of times, but uh, yeah, I think I sort of got all the stuff uh, unpacked from the PCDU mobile and just sort of dumped it in here and thought, well that's it, I'm not even going to look at that for a couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah, I have uh, finally started organising all my stuff here, it's slowly coming back to being my normal desk that I work on. Well, Right off the top, folks, we want to say to all of you who've taken the time to uh, write in and uh, you know on our Facebook page and uh, comments on our blog and uh, sending mail through to our email address. Uh, so many positive comments from so many of you, and uh, we really do appreciate that. It's uh, it's always nice to know when you you put in a lot of hard work, and that was it was a fun week, but it was a lot of hard work, and I'm I'm glad that everybody in, enjoyed the the results. So thanks to all of you who've taken the time to write in. We're going to have a listener mail section at the end of this show, as always. Yeah, definitely. Uh, we've we've had a lot of really great comments and people saying how much they appreciate what we've done so uh, thanks everyone it, it was a hard slog but uh, it was really worth it there were so many opportunities for us and uh, we had a chance to really uh, show you guys uh, Avalon from a different angle meanwhile a uh, bit of recovery to do and uh, look if you're listening to this on the computer you can do this now while you're listening or otherwise just make a note when you're back at the computer come over to our website because we've set up a uh, audience survey we're wanting to hear from you uh, what you think about the uh, show and what we're doing and where we're going and uh, some ideas you might have had things like that you can't miss it towards the top of our page it says fill out our survey and it's uh, just in the same band as the iTunes YouTube and Vimeo logos so uh, hop on over there and fill it out we've already had quite a few responses so we're looking to get some more and uh, let us know what you think of what we're doing. Yep, absolutely. All, all feedback welcome and, you know, particularly positive. But, uh, you know, if there's things we're doing that you don't like, you can always let us know that too. And, uh, you know, this will be a great way for us to uh, collate this information perhaps a little bit more accurately than we've been doing just by relying on listener emails. So, uh, yeah, if you can take time, it only probably take you two or three minutes to fill it out and uh, we'd really appreciate that. And now, uh, great thanks to our friend up there in Calgary in Canada, Ian Kershaw, who's uh, gone to the trouble of uh, putting this together for us. Major thanks, Ian. Really appreciate it, mate. Okay, so let's get into this episode. Now, uh, of course, it hasn't been all uh, resting over the last couple of weeks. We've been very busy editing down uh, a lot of the additional content that we recorded at Avalon. And uh, what we thought we'd do with the theme of this particular episode is to give you an idea of the uh, the corporate side of things. Avalon is an air show for the public, but ostensibly, uh, Grant, basically it's a trade show. That's right. And uh, the first few days of the show, there's usually quite a few major press releases and announcements coming out. Uh, for instance, uh, it was within the first day or so that we found out that we, there was going to be a fifth 
C17 being purchased, BAE Systems announcing uh, new work being done to service the ADF's pilot training systems, and uh, lots more news every day. In fact, uh, Gerard Frawley and the team from Australian Aviation have a group on site. They've got their own media room, and they are very busy every day of the trade show putting out the show daily newspaper. And it's on glossy paper. It's in color. And in fact, uh, it has a a different masthead color depending on what day of the week it is. And uh, they put a lot of effort into producing that show daily and it's packed full of information and uh, always something new happening at Avalon. So this is the idea of of the trade days. It's where all the big uh, manufacturers come to uh, to hawk their wares. And, uh, you know, Grant, there was, uh, as we we spoke about in the quick casts, you know, there was um, a a very heavy military presence there. We saw, uh, you know, military uh, uniforms from from all parts of the globe, really, there to uh, take in the presentation a lot of uh, very high-ranking officers and uh, government officials and all that sort of thing. Uh, one of the interesting things I saw was, uh, you know, some some of the people from the uh, Israeli government, uh, judging yes. by the look of them, with their very large and serious-looking bodyguards. That was rather interesting to see. Yep, and quite a few uh, senior brass from China and other parts of Asia as well. This is basically what it's all about at Avalon, you know, is to, is to come there and, and to try and uh, impress uh, certain government military leaders and, uh, you know, I guess also people from the airlines and GA and uh, hopefully uh, certain sell vast amounts of their product. So, uh, Grant, we've got a few here. We spoke to some people from uh, Northrop Grumman, from BAE Systems, they'll be in this one, and also a gentleman from a local manufacturer that's uh, managed to score a contract for making some parts for the F-35 aircraft. That's right, mate. And then after all that, we're going to have Anthony Simmons giving us the uh, first of a few very special View from the Lounge episodes, all based on his experience of uh, hanging out with us at Avalon. Uh, He had a lot of fun, and uh, it's given him a lot of food to think about. That, plus a few glasses of uh, rather wonderful wine have uh, helped fire his uh, imagination and he's producing a few new episodes. So the first of those is in this episode. Absolutely. So let's kick it off with the first of the interviews we did at BAE Systems. We're going to have a talk to Dan Schroeder and he's going to tell us all about what they're up to here in Australia at the moment. We're here with Dan Schroeder. Uh, you are the, uh, what's your position with BAE? I'm the head of uh, strategy and business development for BAE Aerospace in Australia. Cool. So you're looking after all aerospace involvement of what is now Australia's largest uh, defence contractor? That's correct, yes. Yeah. Uh, BAE merged with Tenex recently, wasn't it? Uh, BAE purchased uh, Tenex uh, close to three years ago now, so integration went well. Yeah. Uh, in the aerospace side, they'd brought together the... Uh, good depth in platform maintenance that was currently in BAE's business and the uh, platform and systems integration business that came out of the Tenex uh, company. Now we're surrounded by a lot of aerospace models here and there's a lot of work that BAE does from both uh, the Hawk that is of course a British aerospace aircraft so you uh, maintain and support that for the RAF yeah? That's correct yeah. We can run through the various platforms if you like and talk about those so uh, in regards to the Hawk obviously we're the OEM of the aircraft and sold that into Australia. A large portion of the fleet was actually assembled in Australia by a company that was then called Hunter Aerospace and BA uh, eventually purchased Hunter Aerospace and brought it into the business, as is our want. It's a a full through-life support contract, so we're responsible for the total in-service support of the uh, Hawk and we provide it under a performance-based contract uh, and an availability model, so a certain number of aircrafts on the line every day. So we look after all the deeper maintenance, we look after the in-country engineering, we're supported in the engineering by our uh, parent in the UK, 
Uh, we do all of the supply chain management, uh, repairable items, uh, uh, logistics support. So, okay. so what? It's a good contract we believe for the Air Force because it reduces their requirement in their systems program office to no more than about nine people. Yeah. So a normal traditional SPO will run to about 100, 120 people. So that has that advantage. Okay. So. Uh, that gave us a good facility at RAF Base Williamtown where we looked after the Hawks. So eventually we won the uh, deeper maintenance contract for the F-18 Classic uh, fleet. So we do all the deeper maintenance for those uh, aircraft as well, plus incorporation of mods into the aircraft as well. So that, uh, that we hope, positions as well for future F-35 support. Yeah. Uh, it, it sort of makes a lot of sense for Lockheed and the Australian government because it's an easy transition, reduce yeah. the risk, reduce the cost through the transition of that aircraft into service when it finally arrives in country, currently scheduled for about 2017-2018. So uh, that's our fast jet business. Uh, another key part of our business is the rotary wing support. This okay. is where we look after the... Uh, Commonwealth's, uh, the Australian Army's um, Blackhawk helicopter fleet, yep. mostly based in Townsville. Yep. So we have a large facility at Townsville Airport where we do that deeper maintenance and incorporation of mods there as well. Okay. Uh, we also, at that same facility, look after the CH-47Ds, uh, yep. which uh, we've just retended that work and rewon that work and was announced yesterday by the Minister. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah. It was a strong battle against the OEM and some other other uh, <laughs> companies in Australia. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but it's, um, it's again deeper maintenance and, and other maintenance cycles and incorporation modifications under that platform. There's only six aircraft yeah. but we're hopeful that that contract would see us go through to the new aircraft, the CH-47 Fs when yeah. they arrive yeah. around about 14, 15. So. Yeah. Okay. Uh, also on the Rotary Wing Empire, we look after the uh, Australian Navy's uh, fleet of uh, Seahawk helicopters okay. in Nara, yep. and that's more of a through-life support type contract, so it's a wider. Yep. We, have, uh, we look after all the repairable items, logistics support, we do some basic engineering activities for that, and we also do all the deeper maintenance cycles, and then re- we do repairs of a lot of RIs at our facility in Nara as well. Okay, so now that's with the Seahawks um, and the Blackhawks. If um, if the uh, ADF goes with Team Romeo, are you folks involved in that? No, we're not. Uh, unfortunately, we're not going to position on that team, not yet anyway, so we have hope <laughs> for the future. So. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so as that one comes up, you might be able to get some more work. And, yeah. Anyway, Eurocopter will still believe that they've got a competition with the NFH, but we've got no position on that team either. So, <laughs> so, so, so you're ag- agnostic on uh, the uh, the part. What is it? Part nine of uh, the uh, that. Which one is it? Nine thousand. Yeah, nine thousand phase eight. Phase yeah. eight. That's yeah. it. That's the word. Phase so eight. yesterday we announced the teaming with uh, Augusta Westland and CAE for the phase seven part of that project, which yeah. is the rotary, rotary wing flying training. That's the hats, isn't it? Yeah. Yep. So that that'll be a, probably between. 16 and 22 aircraft and they'll be based at NARA as well, make use of our existing sustainment capability and our workforce and facilities there. Okay. Is that uh, going to be based on the power, the A109 power that they're using at the moment? One of the family of A109s, at the moment there's A109Es providing the RMI service for, yep. for Navy. Uh, this is probably not suitable for the hats because of the power restrictions and size in the cabin. So we'll upscale and pick one of the other parts of the 109 family, depending on the final uh, defence requirements in the okay. RFT. Okay, so that's pretty much covered fixed ring uh, in terms of fast jet and rotary, but yeah. there's way more going on. Oh, definitely, yeah. I'm standing beside a model of an AP3C here. That's correct, yeah. And you're so working on the um, electronic, uh, the EMS? 
Uh, there's a number of projects on it. The primary project on that is through life support of the mission system. Okay. Uh, this is an alliance type contract between ourselves, the Commonwealth of Australia yep. and Australian Aerospace. Okay. We predominantly look after the mission suite and the uh, ground environments including the OMS and uh, the software integration laboratory. Okay. So we maintain all the software for the, uh, for the mission suite on the AP3C and we do other upgrades. There's uh, upgrades like autopilot coming on board, uh, TCAS, which is and uh, tactical common data link, yep. uh, with and uh, there'll be uh, some of the other uh, navigation type projects coming on in the future as well. Okay. Uh, Australian Aerospace predominantly do the platform maintenance and yep. uh, some of the platform upgrades that are required around our mission system upgrades. Okay. Uh, to be announced shortly is the uh, the MSSC contract, which is is a follow on of that contract, okay. and, and that'll be announced in the next day or two at the show here. So cool. you got a bit of a scoop there. <laughs> hey, can we get this out today? <laughs> it's cool. an open secret. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I, mean, I mean, obviously the air, the P3 is uh, scheduled for withdrawal around the 2018 time frame. Yeah. But there'll probably be a transition of aircraft. Uh, when the P8 comes into service, yeah. probably around about that time frame. Yeah, because so. there's the potential mm. for the P8 to also work with the um, Northrop Grumman, uh, mm. the uh, Global Hawk. So, but that's ah, S7000 Phase One B, which is the UAS portion of that yeah. maritime thing, has been deferred by government. If yep. you've heard, so. There is some thoughts they may bring that forward, but that's yeah. obviously still something that capability development and defence is looking at. So we'll wait to see how that goes. So. Yeah, well, it's very sexy to see the Poseidon coming in. It's looking like a very nice uh, aircraft. Yeah, I guess the uh, support model for that is still to be determined by defence. Uh, so we're not quite sure how that'll work. Yeah. There are some uh, U.S. Navy people providing briefings, I think, at the show yeah. uh, sometime today on that yeah, subject. So, doing a, and Boeing's doing yeah, that as well. So. Yeah. Interesting to see what the long-term support model is of okay. that is. Because you, you folks are getting um, exposure into 737 airframe systems through your work with the wedge tail, yeah? Yeah, well, I guess we uh, we did some work around the ESM systems on that aircraft, yeah. so we know a fair bit about it, uh, and we could obviously we hope to support that on wedge tail for some time to come. Yeah. And there's some discussions going on with Boeing on that subject at the moment. So, okay. yeah. so that's so you're working with the wedge tail. You're uh, maybe working with the Poseidon. Yeah. Uh, what other airframe systems are you working with? I guess our uh, flight training uh, organisation yeah. in Tamworth, where we have uh, a company-owned fleet of CT4 aircraft, which yeah. we provide as part of the basic flying training package yeah. for defence. So uh, it's a company-owned facility, company-owned aircraft. We provide a total service in uh, flight screening and uh, basic flying training. Yep. We also do flight screening services for the Republic of Singapore, so they send yep. their people down to that facility as well. Okay. A bit landlocked, our Singaporean brothers, also yes. waterlocked, they've got no room to do this sort of thing. Yep. Uh, we also do stuff for the Brunei and Air Force as well, and there's okay. a course of uh, Brunei pilots who's just graduated from Tamworth, so yep. we hope to do more for those sort of smaller air forces in the region, so okay. that's a good thing. Cool. So uh, the aircraft, I guess, has just recently been uh, recertified to the latest FAR 27 crashworthiness requirements okay. to allow it to, to progress in the future. Because so. it is the CT4, isn't it? The yeah, it's a fairly elderly aircraft, yeah. but it's still in good shape. Fatigue yeah. life, it's, it's good. Uh, there's a refurbishment program where we replace the main wing spars yeah. and we do some upgrades along the way, but it's okay. very well maintained. It's looked after well by, uh, by the, the defence pilots. So yeah. We, no. they, don't, they don't sort of throw around the sky too much. So they slam it down too hard. Yeah, well, some good QFIs both on our side and on the Commonwealth side make sure the students <laughs> stay in control. Excellent. Now, the, 
the uh, the one question with the training and so on is that the ADF are upgrading their whole pilot training system. Right. Uh, there has been some talk that it's being done out of sync with uh, what's being done with the JSF and things like that. So, how are you folks? You folks are in for the bidding to take that on? Yeah, correct. We, it was I think announced uh, just before Christmas that we're teaming with Raytheon and Hawker yep. Beechcraft to yep. offer the T6C Texan yep. as part of that. Uh, our part of it is obviously the basic flying training element of it and we'll also do sustainment support of the T6C aircraft okay. which is sort of our strength in country. Yep, yeah. cool. Is there, do, you, do you think there's a likelihood that after this one comes through there's going to be another rejigging of the whole training because with the way that the uh, F-35 training seems to be going over in the US at the moment, mm. it may have an impact all the way back to basic training as well. Oh, no doubt. I know that's part of the 5428 uh, opportunity yeah. when it comes out. It'll be very much focused on making sure that the graduate pool can yeah. flow through to the new F-35 when it's introduced. So, yeah. so no, we hope to be part of that as well when the F-35 comes into country. Just as we finish up here, there's what we're talking about here is a, a big shift, particularly in Australia, away from it all being done by the Commonwealth and in-house to civilian contractors doing a lot of this maintenance and training work. Is that a worldwide trend? Do you see that increasing and going along with other countries? Uh, I think it's progressive and when it makes sense. So for the Australian customer, when it makes sense to go with industry, when industry can provide a more certain service over a period of time, maintain capability, which perhaps defence can't do with its you know, it's, it's a rotating pool of personnel and posting cycles and the rest of it. So, but it, it has to be economic. It has to it has to make economic sense to the Department of Defence. And and obviously, you know, like all of the Australian defence companies, we're looking very closely at the strategic reform program and working with defence to find ways to drive cost out of the whole supply chain, not only in training but also in other sustainment for our platforms. And we've been quite successful, I think, in introducing uh, mechanisms like lean process improvement, uh, new tools for management and maintenance and other support activities and we're starting to deliver back to uh, to the Commonwealth the savings they're looking at under the SRP program. Uh, Mr. Ring McKinney who is the new GM of uh, Assistance Division in DMO spoke at the recent ADM conference and, and singled out the Hornet, the Hornet Classic as, 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 a, as a good example of how the SRP program can address and drive our cost increase efficiency and availability and we're quite proud that we were part of that delivery with the Commonwealth. So, so how do you go with uh, civilian contractors um, supplying, you know, you're supplying a lot of civilians and you're, you're on the defence bases and yeah. possibly potentially on a frontline situation with maintaining aircraft, mm. how does that integrate with the, uh, the rest of the ADF? It uh, seems to work reasonably well. We've not been in a situation of doing forward supply into areas of operation. Uh, I think uh, Boeing in, uh, in situ, I think, provides their uh, UAVs. It's the only one of note that I can think of. I'm sure there's a range of other people doing land system support as well in, in the operational environment. Um, Defence has adjusted its rules to make sure that can actually work. But I think uh, contractors in the defence environment is, is fairly a widespread trend as well. Uh, we probably won't end up as much as the Americans do in some of their forward supports into areas like Afghanistan and Iraq previously. I mean, yeah. I think that's probably a stretch too far for the Australian Defence Force for the moment, but you never yeah. know. Yeah. 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 I was just intrigued. As I guess your guys are mostly back at the uh, the main air bases, which are quite far yeah. behind. That's, where that, that's, that's correct. And operating on the bases here in Australia is is we've got good protocols with the defence. Everybody understands their role. We've, we have good tenants and they're good landlords, I guess, and uh, because we're providing a valuable service and providing aircraft availability, which they require for operations, so it, it seems to work well. There's probably a trend to move some of the contracting support off base, but then that, in, that requires an investment 
mm. uh, and new facilities and the rest of it, which sort of goes against the whole grain. But um, yeah. but I think as, as bases are redeveloped, uh, now I guess it's the classic example, it's up for a major redevelopment. Uh, we currently do a lot of our work on base, but we're now moving to a new Sea Orb support centre, which we're establishing on the commercial side of, of NAS now. So, and that seems to be working quite well. So we're sort of schizophrenic at the moment. We're partly <laughs> on and partly off. But, uh, and the transition is a gradual transition to make sure we don't lose that ability to, uh, to support the Defence Force and provide availability. OK. Thank you very much, Dan. All right. Thanks very much. Paul Cook from BAE Systems, welcome aboard the show. Thank you, glad to be here. Cool. Now, Paul, I, before we get started on this wonderful piece of kit just down here, I understand that you're an ex-Apache pilot. That's right. I'm a retired U.S. Army aviator. Okay. Uh, my primary aircraft was the Apache. Cool. Um, did, uh, I actually branch transferred into aviation uh, as a captain, so I came in the middle of my career okay. into the aviation branch. So you started out in the mud moving and... Uh... Started out in the field artillery world and got tired of watching those guys flying while I was walking and okay. uh, I branch transferred into aviation as a captain. Okay. Straight into uh, Apaches and then Korea, tours in Bosnia and then okay. Fort Hood, Texas. Okay. What got you interested in aviation? Um, I think that I really kind of forest gumped my way into aviation. <laughs> uh, I happened to be assigned to the 10th Mountain Division which was in Mogadishu, Somalia. Okay. Uh, I had an assignment as the aviation liaison officer yeah. so I worked in the operations center as the aviation liaison okay and I just got to know the aviators and got to know the the senior leaders and the mission and it, and when we left Somalia I went straight to Fort Rucker for, for flight school okay so, <laughs> you saw the light and decided to go I able. saw the light and uh, the people that I worked with were were kind enough to help me branch transfer Excellent. and it worked out really well, well okay <laughs> so uh, how, how many years was it you were flying Apaches uh, about 11 and a half. Okay. All your time in the military was on Apaches? No, other than the, the time that I was in the field artillery, yes. Yeah. Oh, sorry, yeah, in the, in the, in the airborne military, yes. Okay, cool. And um, so how many hours was that you had? Uh, probably just shy of 2,000 total hours. Okay. Uh, I would guess, uh, you know, 1,700 or so in the Apache. Okay. So after you uh, left the military, um, you went into the civilian world, yeah? I did. And worked doing what? I went uh, straight into the Northrop Grumman Corporation in uh, the Electronic Systems Division in Baltimore, Maryland. Yeah. They, uh, Northrop Grumman and Lockheed Martin have a joint venture where they do the Longbow Fire Control yeah. Radar System. Yeah. And I was, they were looking for someone with operational experience on the fire control radar. Okay. And at that time, in 2001, Longbow pilots were fairly rare because yeah. we were just fielding the piece of equipment. Yeah. Um, so they were looking for somebody with operational experience. I was okay. looking to get out of the Army and it worked out great. Yeah, perfect timing. Perfect timing. Okay. And so you worked there for a while, but now you're with VAE Systems? I worked uh, in Baltimore for three years and yeah. then I took an assignment as a forward deployed uh, business development asset at Fort Rucker, Alabama. Okay. I was there for three years, and then BAE made me an offer I couldn't refuse, and I, <laughs> and I uh, switched companies, and I'm now in upstate New York working for BAE Systems. Okay, and you're uh, Director of uh, Business Development? For the Defense Avionics piece of our business. Okay, and that leads quite nicely into this wonderful piece of Defense Avionics. Uh, would you care to explain what we're looking at here? Yeah, this is the Quantum Site, or a Q-Site for short. Okay. Um, it's a revolutionary way of displaying 
critical flight data in a near-to-the-eye see-through display. Okay. Um, if you think about how you drive your car, and you, I'm sure you've we experienced it, we all have, you know, you, you come inside to reference your speed yeah. and you look out and you come inside to change the radio channel. Yeah. And, and probably at some time during your life you've experienced where you, you look up and you've drifted yeah. and you and you know and you yeah if you the whole so the whole idea of a HUD or a helmet mounted display is to give you that information so you can reference it no yeah. matter what you're doing. Yeah. And it's in, it's see-through, so not only can you reference it, yep. but you have all your peripheral visual cues at okay. the same time. Okay. So even though I'm looking at the display, I can still see what's going yep. on in my peripheral vision out to the side. Yeah, excellent. So that kind of that heads-up, eyes-out concept started with HUDs in the fast jet world. Yep. And of course, HUDs are tied to the center line of the aircraft. So you, if you're yep. looking left and right, yep. they're not particularly helpful. Nope. So then you get into the very high-end helmets, like what they have on Typhoon, yeah. uh, which is a very—it's a bespoke helmet, you know, and it's a whole for, kit and caboodle is a whole all kit in and it. caboodle for a very specific yeah. thing. So what we've done is we've taken that same concept, we've got it down to a, a package that's small, lightweight, and inexpensive. Yeah. And it adapts to whatever helmet you already happen to have. Okay, so, so it just bolts on the side there. Bolts on to the side, whatever okay. helmet you you happen to have. This bolts on. Um, sits very close to the eye, so you can use it like this for the daytime yep. Yep. to get all your flight symbology. And then when you transition to night, you just flip the goggles down. Okay. And because the, the display is between your eyeball and the front end of the goggle tube, it's a okay. seamless day-night transition. Okay. And does it lower the intensity for because it, it, it's, it's a it's, night vision aware? It's adjustable. Okay. Uh, it's got a dimmer switch, so you yep. can adjust the brightness to your okay. comfort level. Cool. Um, it's got some advantages. The seamless day-night transit transition is one of the primary advantages. Yep. It also has a fairly large field of view. This one that you're going to see is a 30-degree circular field of view. Okay. Uh, we're continuing to improve that with the goal of getting up to 40 degree, 40 degree plus okay. field of view. So it has a large field of view, and it also has a very large exit pupil. Okay. And what that means is a near-to-the-eye displays typically. If they're not positioned precisely right, yeah. you lose all or part of the image. Yeah. It gets cut off. Yeah. Um, and this has a large exit pupil, which means it can move a pretty good ways and you can still see the full image. Okay. Very important for rotorcraft. Yeah. Um, fast jet helmets are precisely fitted, laser fitted liners, so okay. the helmets don't move on the head a whole lot. Yeah. Rotary wing helmets are typically small, medium, and large, you know? <laughs> so they, they kind of, they move, you sweat as you, yeah. you fly, you know, and they, they move around. And then you're in a high vibration environment, oh, so, yeah, so it just kind of, it bounces. Yeah. Um, so because we have the large exit pupil, you can experience all of those things and still see the full image. You're not constantly yeah, moving that around, readjusting, yeah. as, you, as you may have to with other near-to-the-eye displays. Okay. So the large exit pupil is a critical uh, discriminator for this particular uh, okay. technology. And so it's not adding a lot of weight either? It's, it's, it's not adding a lot light. of weight either. And this is a frangible arm, so in a crash okay. sequence, uh, because you don't want all that extra weight on the head causing yeah. a neck injury or, you know, yeah. giving you that momentum, this will actually shear off okay. in, in a crash sequence. Um, okay. So it won't stay attached to the helmet. Okay, excellent. Okay, are we able to give this a try? Absolutely. Well, we have our uh, crash test dummy standing right here. Hey, Steve. Hey. <laughs> hey, Mark, can you help us uh, yes. put that on the head? Okay. So, yeah, Mark's coming in now, and uh, he's going to give us a go here. Thank you much. Yeah. 
Now what you'll see is uh, there's a lot of a, a number of ways this can work. Some information that's that's relevant all the time: your airspeed, your altitude, your attitude. That type of stuff is is important no matter where you happen to be looking. Yeah. Right. So that would not require a, a head tracker. Right. That's just you know flight critical information. Yeah. Now, if you want to go to conformal symbology, okay. where you have geo-located symbols, like okay. your desired landing point or yeah. your target, your target. Yeah. that or kind of person, stuff. person's emergency trans transmitter for a rescue or things like that. All of that, those kind of things, yeah. which may not be located off the nose. If I'm okay. turning, if, if I'm flying base and I haven't turned yeah. final, my landing point may be over my right shoulder. Yeah. So I can, with a head tracker, by yeah. adding a tracker to the helmet, okay. I can look over to my landing point and see it on the Q site. Okay. Even though the nose of the helicopter is 90 degrees yeah. off. So yeah, the, so the right bits are, are hooked up to trans, transfer vision. The other thing we'll demonstrate is we can show symbology only. We yeah. could show video if you have a, a video input source, yeah. uh, infrared sensor or an I squared okay. sensor. And then we can also overlay the symbology onto the video and show them okay. both simultaneously. Okay. Oh, that's better. There you go. Okay, now we've got Steve and Borg happening, dude. <laughs> that's amazing. It's you can see it. Yep. Okay, Steve, so talk to us about how, it's, how it feels, how you're looking. Okay, so uh, what I'm looking at here now is a heads-up display. I can see uh, altitude and my heading, all that sort of information. And, um, yeah, my airspeed, all that sort of stuff. The, the clarity is amazing. I'm basically looking straight through there, straight at you, and yeah. it's quite clear, but uh, superimposed in front of you, I can see uh, presumably what you're looking at on the screen there. Yeah. It's the, the clarity yeah. is amazing. It's focused at infinity, so you can, yeah. you know, you don't have to change your focus yeah. to see. You can look through it and see the see the information. And again, the, the whole concept is to give you the information so you don't have to come inside to reference yeah. gauges in the cockpit. And you can maintain that visual situational awareness as you're flying the machine. Yeah. And that's and yeah, not like a standard hood where you've got to come back to the center line and then look out and come back. Right. Because like that yeah. car analogy, yeah, it's all happened to every helicopter pilot too. Okay. You get caught up in changing the radio frequency or writing something on your kneeboard and you yeah. and you drift. Oh yeah. And when you're close to the ground and, and <laughs> you yeah. know it can be catastrophic. Oh, so yeah. having that kind of stuff where you can you can detect that without okay. having to. You know, yeah. when you get wrapped up in things, it gives you no, the cues awesome. that you need to, that is, to that detect is really that kind good. of drift. The F-35, they make a big thing about the whole helmet system, and that, but that's a bespoke like the um, the Raphael and the, the, the Typhoon, rather. It was, yeah, yeah, the, it's a custom for it, but this bolts on. This this bolts on, so it's the same concept as what yeah. you'd see in the Typhoon helmet or the Joint Strike Fighter helmet. Yeah. That same heads-up, eyes-out concept, only instead of a bespoke helmet this yeah. is something that can adapt to whatever helmet you happen to have yeah. in service and so this could be this could be sold into civil as well as military it could be sold um, into civil as well yeah. as military absolutely and uh, Mark was telling us yesterday about and it's, it's flashed up on the video occasionally you uh, the operations not just for pilots either it can also be used for aircrew um, in the back the gunners and so on yes we, we actually uh, late last year delivered our first 12 systems to the Royal Navy and a door gunner configuration and essentially what we do for the non-flying crew members and uh, you could probably imagine the, the thermal weapon sites that they have mounted on the top of the door guns um, as, as you especially if you're tar yeah, trying to service targets that are underneath you and the gun you know you can't see the output of that site unless you can put your eyeball at yeah. the back end of the site which can be very difficult as the aircraft's maneuvering 
yeah. and you know you, yeah. they, they can really you have to contort your body just to see yeah and you can also get your whole head out there ready to be shot off if someone yes, unfriendly is down exactly below. so yeah. what, what all we do is we take the output of that thermal weapon site yep. and put it on front in front of the Q site so you can tell where the weapon is pointing even yeah. though you're sitting safely and comfortably in the car you don't have to contort your body to look at the yeah. back end of the thermal weapon and that's awesome yeah. so we delivered our first uh, 12 production units to the royal navy last year and uh we're hoping we have a number of opportunities now to uh get yeah. Q-Site up into the into the cockpit as a pilotage role okay yeah because uh, mark was saying you could get a uh, you could get the pilot could also look at the same uh like the mission commander the gunner's saying, that's what I'm pointing at. The mission commander can flick it over to himself, go, yep, that's the right thing to point right. at. And he, if, if you had rules of engagement that yep. were restrictive and required the pilot in command to authorize yep. ordinance release, he could switch over, see what the gunner was looking at, back. say, yeah, that's a bad guy, you're cleared yep. to fire, and, and switch back. So Excellent. all of that's possible yep. with a system like this. Okay, and are you doing much, uh, is there much civilian world marketing of it? We're very focused on military at the moment. Yeah. I think that there would be interest in the civilian yeah. uh, world, especially things where you're landing uh, offshore oil, kind of where you're landing in confined yeah. areas, uh, bad services. weather, yeah. um, you know, yeah. and, and to have the cues to kind of land safely yeah. and that kind of stuff, I think it would be a great application for site. But we're currently focused on the military yeah. market. And I think those things will come in time as we get some of these out there and fielded. And, uh, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about QSight. I think it's a great product. It, you know, it's light, it's inexpensive. We adapt to whatever helmet you have. It's got all those advantages we talked about. And at the end of the day, it's about saving pilots' lives, operating the machine safely, and, and you know, giving them the information that they need to maintain their situational awareness and not be distracted and not have to come inside to get the critical information that they need to operate the aircraft. Yep. So no, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, Paul. And uh, also thank you very much for uh, allowing us to set up Steve at Borg here. Absolutely. That's been awesome. <laughs> glad we finally got it where you can see it. Yeah, no, that's great. <laughs> Whether you're buying or selling a light single-engine aircraft or a corporate jet, do it faster and easier with aviationadvertiser.com.au. Aviationadvertiser.com.au is Australia's largest aviation marketplace. As the country's largest source of aircraft classifieds, you'll find hundreds of new and used aircraft of all types online 24 hours a day. With ads from just $39 and the convenience of buying and selling online, it's easy and affordable. Connect with Australia's largest buy and sell aviation community at aviation Close your eyes and think about what you want to become. Now add a little extra excitement and a fair bit of adventure. Then picture mates around you just as dedicated and interested as you are. Imagine getting specialised training in your choice of job, plus unique experiences that money can't buy. Got a pen to write down this number and web address? Because chances are, no matter what occupation you imagined, you'll find it. With over 60 different jobs to choose from in the Air Force. Call 13 or visit defencejobs.gov.au. Air Force. Accomplished. Would you like to podcast with the Lifestyle Pod Network? We're Australia's fastest growing podcast network, and we're looking for people who love to podcast. You get great benefits like a free blog, podcast hosting with unlimited bandwidth, and a great community of podcasters to connect with. Find out more by visiting lpnhost.com. Pilot Stu here from the Pilot's Journey podcast. You're listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, where it's what's down under that counts. Now back to Grant and Steve, the masters of sound effects. 
and welcome back folks. Now uh, one of the interesting central themes that we noticed at this particular Avalon which was perhaps a bit more prominent uh, this time than in previous shows was uh, the trend towards uh, automation and autonomous systems. In this section we talked to some gentlemen from Northrop Grumman. We're going to kick it off talking to Walter Kreitler about BAMS or Broad Area Maritime Surveillance and uh, after that we're going to talk to Mike Fuqua. He's going to tell us all about the Fire Scout. Okay we're with uh, Walter Kreitler. Uh, Walter you're going to give us a bit of a discussion about Northrop Grumman's BAMS. Uh, First of all, what is BAMS? Hmm. BAMS is the Broad Area Maritime Surveillance Unmanned Aircraft System. It's the latest development in the Northrop Grumman family of the Q4 series of aircraft, generally uh, called by their initial name, Global Hawk. The aircraft is uh, currently under development. Northrop Grumman is on contract with the United States Navy for a system design and development contract that we've been under since the uh, summer of 2008 to deliver two aircraft to complete test and operational evaluation in anticipation of the Navy continuing on to produce in the end, 68 of these aircraft to populate five bases worldwide. Okay. The Navy's intention is to have a capability to operate five orbits 24/7, provide maritime domain awareness all over the globe. Okay. So it's not just it's not just for coverage of the continental United States boundaries oh, no. area. Absolutely not. The airplanes will be deployed uh, globally, and, and again, providing you know that uh, situational awareness, yep. provide providing a uh, surface picture of what's on the ocean surface. Okay, so the whole the whole world, so from the ocean surfaces. Uh, right, wherever the Navy chooses to deploy. But absolutely, okay. I'd anticipate you know uh, there's a lot of notional schemes. In fact, the Navy actually has not determined where what the laydown will be, where yep. the aircraft will be posted. But you know, currently the U- U.S. Air Force has two Global Hawks uh, in Sigonella, Sicily, and two in, uh, in Guam. Yep. So I would anticipate that we would probably choose to, we, the Navy would choose <laughs> to uh, uh, also go to those bases. But the, that decision hasn't been made. Okay. Now, these are the same Global Hawks, similar to the one a few years ago that did a uh, non-stop uh, flight from the U.S. to Australia, unmanned? Well, absolutely. Same family. But remember yeah. now, 10 years ago, that Block 10 aircraft is 15 feet, has 15 feet less wingspan than the uh, okay. BAMS aircraft. Our aircraft is, uh, is, is larger fuselage has a much increased payload, 3,200-pound payload, and has a a more robust electrical system. So the BAMS aircraft is the next logical step in the Q4 family. It has anti-ice, de-ice, it has additional uh, uh, anti-lightning capability, bird strike, has a higher gust loading on the wing. So all the things we needed to do to make this aircraft uh, certifiable in national airspace, we have done. Okay. To, right. Yeah, because that's another major factor of these uh, unmanned vehicles coming back in and out of uh, areas where people are light aircraft and other military Absolutely. aircraft. Absolutely. Clearly uh, a matter of import and of interest to both civil, commercial, and general and military yeah. and general aviation. I got to tell you, I mean, BAM's mission will be done above, you know, 50,000 feet. So that's, yeah. what, three miles, two miles above uh, most air, air commercial traffic. Yeah. But nonetheless, you want to make sure that, you know, uh, that the aircraft is um, has met all the metrics. And yeah. to do that, we're writing all of our flight control software in a DO-178B compliant uh, metrics. And so, of course, what that means is we have very intensive tests of our flight control software, uh, you know, massive truth tables, you know, yep. a lot of Boolean drills to make sure we've examined every eventuality for the uh, for the software. Okay. So we're very confident that, that our aircraft uh, will be able to be, you know, qualified to, to fly in, in national airspace. Okay. 
most UAV issues are cultural, not technical. Yep. No, and, you know, it. and we think that you know our aircraft presents you know, another step towards you know a, a, a cultural acceptance of you know unmanned flight. Okay. That's yeah. the main thing, isn't it? Cultural acceptance, particularly amongst pilots who tend to say to us, and we hear anecdotally at least that you know they worry about these sort of unmanned vehicles flying around. But mm -hmm. uh, from your perspective, there's really no issue with that. Well, I guess I would say this. Uh, let's look back historically. Um, a quick story. Uh, so in, it's 1890. You're in New York City. You're going up a skyscraper. You've never seen an elevator before, and one opens up. Are you going to get in it alone? Probably not. Okay? <laughs> nice. You go to Dallas-Fort Worth Airport today. You yeah. change terminals. You get in a train. You might well be alone. Yeah. Okay? So over time, things have changed. Yep. Now, as a practical matter, most commercial travelers are not ready to get, in, to get into a UAV to go on vacation. <laughs> no, not at there's several people I would nominate, including my children sometimes, but nonetheless, I mean, you know, we're not quite ready for that yet. Yeah. But at the end of the day, that's a function potentially of time. Yep. So is the UAVs, you know, if you look at how aircraft operate, I mean, consider this. In 2010, how many commercial aircraft crashed and, and caused a fatality in the United States? Do you know how many? Uh, none. The States? There was yeah, none. There, there were no accidents, yeah. fatal accidents, commercial accidents yeah, in the United yeah. States. So what does that tell you? Do we have better weather? Nope. nope. I lived through that. <laughs> we have better pilots? I love them, but I doubt it. But the technology gets ever better. Yep. Ever better. And so for the air vehicle operator who's who's managing, and I say managing yep. because BAMS is flown by a keyboard and mouse, there's yep. no stick and rudder inputs. Yeah. So an air vehicle operator who's managing that aircraft provides a whole different set of fail safes. Yep. And so it, we had a discussion earlier, a separate discussion, is what would be the thing that would make people change their mind? And remember Adam Smith, Wealth of Nations? It's yeah, about yeah. price point. So that invisible hand might do this. If it cost you a dollar to mail an envelope from San Francisco to um, Washington, D.C., but if it goes in a UAV, it only costs 10 cents. Yeah. So, you ready to send your Christmas cards out that way? The, I would uh, the, be. The discount yeah. low-cost carrier theory. Yeah. Well, right. Well, no, no, but that's but but that may be an element of the equation. Now, now clearly, the the, 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 re the regulatory uh, element of this is critical. I mean, yeah. you know, and, and absolutely, you know, the, the FAA has a and, and, and all the and, and CASA they yeah. have a responsibility that is quite frankly sacred to protect the, the traveling public and the commercial yep. public. And, and I would never argue with that. Please don't don't think no, no. otherwise. But I got to tell you, you know, at some point we will continue to advance unmanned flight. Yeah. And, and and, and the question will be, you know, military first, and that, that makes sense, you yeah. know. But um, it, it, I think there's an economic and a technical imperative. It is going to happen, mm -hmm. um, and it's just how well we, we go in. But, I mean, with, with the BAMS vehicle, mm -hmm. uh, like, that could, that, what's its typical loiter time? How long does it stay up there? Well, you know, I mean, the aircraft can fly, you know, it's called 28 hours. Okay. So you know you can go. You you can 14 hours out, 14 yep. hours back. You can go out out 650 miles, stay 24 hours, and yep. come home. So you know I mean it depends what you're doing, how long okay. you can go. But but that that endurance, you know, yep. if you think about it, I mean, what is that? What does all that endurance and persistence do? Well, first of all, it gives you a better understanding of what you're looking at, simply yep. because you're there longer. Okay. Yep. Ignore that for the time being, and that has tremendous value from the mission sense. Yep. But look at the amount of hardware you need to own yeah. to go look there. Yeah. If you can only stay for five hours. You gotta have a lot of aircraft. You have to have a lot of people going to and from. Yeah. Now, on one hand, some folks might say, well, we really don't need to go for 24 hours at a time because we just want to go and see. Yeah. But once you're gone, 
it's like you know it's like going on vacation without your teenage kids you know <laughs> you never know what you leave behind yeah. so or what you're coming home to for that matter yeah. so in that regard uh, you know the ability to go and stay very yeah. valuable yeah but if you look at how much equipment costs what are your cap what's your capital investment and what's your training investment you look at all the things that go into what does it cost mm -hmm. to do this yep. and I think that they're under any set of reasonable assumptions the UAV comes out way ahead yeah one of the things that's the most expensive thing in aviation, you guys know this, is just staying current. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, in the Navy, we used to have to go, um, I'm embarrassed to remember, I mean, you had to go fly, you know, uh, 10 hours a month and, yeah. and get uh, eight approaches and five landings or whatever it happened yeah. to be. Well, that, that's a lot of wear and tear on the airplane. With digital flight control system, if we tell BAMS to land, click the land button on the, yeah. the mouse, it lands. Now, if we don't click that button for a week, do you think it's still going to land? <laughs> I think it's it got, probably still will. It's going to so come you, down sometime. Well, no, with the software, though, what I'm saying yeah, is yeah, the digital yeah. software is going to be there every day for you. Yeah. So, um, you know, no I mean, training. no training. No you training. collapse that yeah. training tail, yeah. and not only that, but all the flights that get you to the training tail. Yep. Yep. So, now there's complex missions, and there's yeah. time, many missions that require yep. a manned aircraft. Let's be clear about that, too. There's no question. But again, it's one of those things where, you know, what's the right mix? I think the U.S. Yeah. Navy did exhaustive studies to determine the right mix of P-8 yep. and the right number of BAMs. I think, I think the, uh, the Royal Australian Air Force is, is, is doing the same kind of exhaustive yep. research and analysis to determine what's the right mix yep. for P-8 and BAMs for them. So and that'll how, work out. How does the BAM system integrate with the P-8, given that Australia is looking very much like it's going to go down the P-8 path? Well, you know, the airplanes, I mean, obviously the U.S. Navy designed, you know, put out the require, you know, designed requirements yep. for P-8, designed requirements for BAM. So, I mean, they they, they communicate very cleanly. Obviously, yep. there's voice links, data links, yep. common data link, link 16, you know, all of those kinds of things. So so the airplane is uh, airplanes are, are designed to work together, okay. if you will. Are you able to tell us what kind of sensor packages are typical on uh, BAMs and aircraft? The, the BAMs aircraft will have a 360-degree radar, 2D AESA radar, yep. and that's very important because you get the full 360-degree sweep in the maritime environment. Yep. It has an ES, ESM system system to detect electronic signals, again, 360 degrees. Okay. It has a electro-optical system that does both color, full motion video, yep. and e electro-infrared, yep. okay? And it has the uh, AIS, which is like maritime IFF, all ships that weigh okay. over 300 tons are supposed to squawk, squawk, squawk yep. on their uh, AIS, all good. And then, then the airplane has, um, obviously, the communication suite to support moving the information around. Like I yep. mentioned, Link 16 has wideband satellite yep. and, and, uh, and it has very robust communication systems. So all of these things work in concert yep. to deliver you know, the, the most, the most real-time information you can get. Talk about the training regime and the, um, the, the difference, obviously, it's being controlled by keyboard and a mouse. So mm -hmm. that's obviously a whole new way of thinking for training uh, Navy personnel or, mm -hmm. or people like that. Are they they're looking at bringing in a, a training syllabus for that? Through the universities before they uh, well, no, that's a good a good question. And right now, the Navy's plan, and and the Navy's looking at the best way to do this. I mean, the Navy is very dedicated to best practices, and obviously, they have a laser-like focus on safety, and and should, and, and that's all good. What I suspect is that their initial crewing concept to have a rated pilot, and a, and a rated naval flight officer, and, and uh, air crew system operators, yeah. uh, allows them to have that aviation background even though it's just a mouse and a keyboard, these folks will come into that knowing about aviation. They'll know about the maritime patrol mission. So you'd regard that as a pretty critical requirement? Um, that's the way the Navy's lining up to do it now. Frankly, I, I look at this as being an air vehicle operator. Probably this, I mean, you know, 
it's one man's opinion, it's not Northrop Grumman's opinion, and it certainly isn't the Navy's. I mean, at some point, you become an air vehicle operator, and the avi understanding aviation and aviation mechanics are critical. Stick and rudder skills are probably not so critical. Yeah. I guess I'd make that observation. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, but it remains to be seen, and I think, I think the Navy is very wise to move forward cautiously yeah. to, to do that in a way that's incremental. Yeah. There's been a number of um, groups, uh, we were just chatting with the RAF guys with the Heron, right. using the Heron UAV. Right. And uh, yeah, we were, uh, indications coming back from, they confirmed that uh, you know, the, the big things are being able to handle the aircraft and the, all the data coming back in from right. it. And uh, they agreed that having somebody with experience right. uh, who's, who knows what combat people need in the field and right. all that kind of stuff, that it's that background in combat and the background in mm -hmm. liaising and interpreting data that's right. more important and, and the critical The central thing. nervous system is the key, key component here. Yeah. Ingesting and redistributing the data in a value-added way. Yeah. And, that is, and that's where you need um, uh, subject matter experts Yep. Who, you know, doesn't have the aviators, has to be subject yep. matter experts looking at the data you collect to make sure it has value. Yep. Well, Walt, thank yep. you very much for being with us. Really appreciate you chat, chatting with us about BAMS. Okay. And uh, yeah, we're looking forward to uh, seeing that hopefully down here in Australia with uh, RAF Colors. Uh, me cool. too, believe me. <laughs> All right. Thanks, thank mate. Thanks, Cheers. Mike Fuqua from uh, Northrop Grumman, welcome aboard. Thank and, you. And uh, we're going to have a chat about Fire Scout, the uh, non-piloted helicopter. Right. It's known as a vertical takeoff and landing tactical unmanned aerial vehicle, VTUAV. Right. Woo. That's a mouthful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. And uh, is it for scouting or is it also for replenishment and things like um, that? Yeah, the primary mission for Fire Scout is intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, okay. and targeting. It's yep. uh, being procured by the U.S. Navy for its new littoral combat ship. Okay, um, so it's going to operate out of a, the back of, an, of a ship? And yes, off the back of a surface combatant. And, okay. and in fact, uh, the littoral combat ship uh, program is a bit um, slower than the U.S. Navy would like, and Fire Scout has been ready to operate, so okay. they've decided to send it to sea in, in their frigates. And so uh, we've completed one, the, the aircraft has completed one deployment uh, yeah. aboard USS McInerney, uh, which was a deployment to the um, what they call the Southcom uh, area of responsibility down in the uh, Central America region, uh, and the aircraft was credited with a major drug bust uh, oh, wow. during that deployment, uh, and so that was a great success story. And today, it's operating aboard USS Halliburton uh, yep. in the uh, Gulf of Aden, okay. um, conducting anti-piracy ops. So it's doing a great job. It's. It's uh, been aboard both of the, the Navy's, U.S. Navy's uh, littoral combat ships, the USS yeah. Freedom and USS Independence, okay. doing um, dynamic interface testing, so it's proceeding well. So about how far away from the ship does it normally run? Uh, um, it, we've been out, the, the aircraft has been out to about 120 miles. Um, it normally, it, it's a line of sight control, so it will depend on the altitude, um, but it will normally fly up around 10,000 feet. Okay. Um, it's got a uh, electro-optical infrared camera for full motion video. It has a tactical data link that brings uh, 10.7 megabits of data down to the uh, ship, full motion video, and uh, it can fly uh, up to six to eight hours. That's great. Operates so, in conjunction with the H-60, the manned yeah, aircraft. Yeah. Cool. So it works, it's fully linked in with the Romeo, that'll be the H-60R? Um, it will be with the Romeo. On this okay. deployment, it's the 60B. So uh, typical operations that they might do, it's, it's going out and sort of allowing over-the-horizon targeting of things. Right. Ships back behind it. Right. Like like any helicopter, it's very utilitarian in nature. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, its primary mission, as I said, is with the full motion video. Yeah. Um, it will have uh, radar in the future, so okay. they'll be able to do wide area surveillance. Yeah. It, it's got a very modular payload architecture um, that allows for different payloads to be added to the aircraft, like um, mine detection systems, uh, sauna buoy, acoustic relay systems. Okay. It's got uh, three UHF, BHF radios, so in fact, Today they're doing communications relay, as a, yep. it's acting as a communications yep. relay platform. It's got uh, automatic intelligence systems on it or information systems, which is an identification system for ships at sea, okay. sort of like IFF in the yep. air, if you're yep. familiar with that. As I said, radar, it's got uh, lots of potential for um, tactical signals intelligence uh, okay. systems on board. And we've also demonstrated the ability to carry um, various things out on the pods of the aircraft. Oh. Uh, we can carry logistics, um, uh, bat batteries, uh, ammunition, medical supplies, okay. and we can autonomously deliver those to the field. All of our aircraft are autonomous, and so is Fire yep. Scout, fully autonomous from takeoff to landing. And it does lead to the question of how you actually control it. Is it yeah, keyboard and mouse? Keyboard and mouse, fully autonomous. Uh, from uh, landing and, and taking off on the ship. So it, it's, it automatically homes in on one location of the ship to land itself? Yes, it's, uh, we use a system called uh, UCARS, Unmanned Common Automatic okay. Recovery System. It uh, is a very um, precise millimeter wave radar. Uh, the aircraft knows where the ship is from a GPS perspective all the time. When it starts back, at some point it picks up the signal. It flies a, a normal pattern down to the ship and lands. Um, and then it has it lands on a grid, and then a harpoon shoots into the grid and holds it on okay. deck. Yeah, because that was the next question was how well does it handle when it's in heaving seas? And yeah, it's got uh, the the limits are pitch five roll eight, so okay. it's got pretty significant um, uh, envelope. Yeah. Um, and our experience so far is the dispersion on the deck has been very precise, um, no more than say two feet, 24 okay. inches. So the operator basically says, I want you to go out, fly this pattern. You can still, because it's line of sight control, you can control it, tell it to change what it, what it is, all that kind of Absolutely. stuff. Absolutely. What happens if it loses comms? Um, well, it's uh, like all of our UAVs at Northrop, uh, there's a full mission package that is programmed in, so yeah. it will do whatever you tell it to do. Um, we've had those experiences where um, it'll be at a certain distance, it may lose communications, it starts executing its lost comm procedures, which yeah. is... Go, may, it might, may be to go back to where you had communications. Yeah. It may be to go to a particular waypoint in the sky. Um, there are many yeah. different okay. things it could do. And then once it reestablishes communications, then you can send it wherever you want to send it. And it's mostly flown in a, a battlefield or a um, military kind of environment. It's not really engaging, not like the, the BAMs, which is flying through likely to fly through commercial airspace? Well, BAMs can fly through commercial airspace because it flies at 60,000 feet. So. Yeah. Well, we're getting, getting from the ground to 60,000. It's got a fair bit of work it, to do. It's got to, uh, they do have a special use permit to get to 60,000 yeah. feet. Now, Fire Scout, like every other UAV in the world, yeah. has uh, issues that will have to be worked out with um, the commercial aviation authorities. Yeah. But 
You know, we, we believe today those problems could be overcome. They're yeah. not technologically char challenging. They're very bureaucratically challenging. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's very hard for a robot to fill out paperwork. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> uh, uh, essentially it's a see and avoid issue. Yeah. You know, how do you, how do you ensure the safety? And certainly all of the civil aviation authorities have an enormous job to do to, to maintain safety in the air. On the other hand, technology is moving along. And um, Northrop, like other companies, are working very diligently with the civilian aviation authorities to understand the issues and to get our unmanned systems into the national airspaces so that we can take advantage of the technology. So is there anything else you wanted to say? Uh, well, only that um, uh, the U.S. Navy is deploying two or three uh, fire scouts to Afghanistan in support of um, our forces there. They're going under the auspices of the uh, ISR task force that was um, chartered by Secretary Gates. So they will be in country uh, providing full motion video um, to the Army forces. Um, okay. They'll be using um, our standard payload, which is the uh, FLIR Systems Bright Star 2. Okay. And so they'll just be working off uh, remote pads or from air yes. bases? Yes, they'll be working from a base. Uh, Somewhere in Afghanistan, yeah. as they no. say. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're not looking for that kind of info. Just, just the fact that they don't have to, they can stage from a, a, a rough and ready strip. It doesn't have to be anything major. Well, of course, that's the, the advantage of any helicopter. Yeah. You know, it can operate wherever you put a, a, a pan. Yeah. So, um, uh, and that's one of the advantages they see to having a, a vertical uh, okay. takeoff and landing aircraft. Yep. Awesome. Mike, thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Want to see Sydney from a different angle? Red Baron Adventures have the flight experience for you. From the aerobatic thrills of the Red Bull stunt plane to scenic flights over Sydney Harbour, there's something for everyone. So check it out at redbaron.com.au for the best seat in the house. G'day, I'm Michael. Hi, I'm Rosalind. And, and we're, we're from, from downwind.com.au, the website for aviation enthusiasts. Come and join a community of passionate aviators who'd love to share about their experiences and the joy of being in the air. On Downwind, you can participate in forum discussions, view great photos and videos, and keep up to date with a weekly newsletter. So come and join the community at downwind.com.au. Hi, this is Max Flight. This is Milford from Flight Time Radio. You can catch Grant and Steve each week on the Airplane Geeks podcast with their Australia Desk Report. Over on our podcast, Steve and Grant send in a bi-weekly update that covers flying in the Southern Hemisphere. Our listeners look forward to the Flying Down Under segment for the great interviews and a taste of aviation life from another point of view. www.airplanegeeks.com If you get a chance, visit flighttimeradio.com to learn a little about our radio show and podcast. Well, I've interrupted the show long enough, so let me turn all you plain crazy back over to the guys and their usual outstanding content. Cheers from America. Find this and other great shows at the Aviation Media Network. The Voices in Your Head.com. Uh, Steve and I are standing here with uh, Paul Levitt. Mate, you have uh, just been awarded another large chunk of work with uh, Pratt & Whitney building the parts for the F-135 engine. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, look, it was a great honour to be uh, awarded this latest contract. Um, it now piggybacks onto contract that we got 
two years ago, uh, supplying tubes and gimbals for the uh, third stage uh, turbine on the F-135 engine. So this award now is only just going to bolster the amount of work we have. It uh, has a value of up to $50 million over the life of the program um, and will keep, uh, obviously, people employed and the uh, machines ticking away for some time. That's a, that's a good thing to have indeed. And uh, how long has Levitt Engineering been going? Levitt was formed in 1989, so uh, from defence uh, origins, I'm uh, ex-DSTO trained person myself, so always been involved in defence and aerospace uh, aspects somewhere along the line. And uh, when I started the company in 89, it was second nature to stay involved in obviously yep. defence and aerospace. So how long have you been working with Pratt & Whitney? Uh, this is the second one, have you had any other involvement with them? It was uh, some years just building the relationship to uh, so that Pratt's even had the confidence yep. to place work with Levitt. So it's been a relationship now that's been going on probably five, five and a half years okay. uh, just to get to this stage. Cool. Uh, what other work do you do? Is it? It's not all just F-135 componentry. You, you do produce other equipment. Uh, yes, we do also produce airframe components for Lockheed Martin. Uh, also uh, have, have some components. We manufacture chassis for the active inceptor, uh, being the joystick of the aircraft. Yeah. So uh, their chassis uh, are sent back to the UK with BAE Systems, cool. and we also have uh, various uh, other contracts just with electronic enclosures and housings yep. uh, that we've been managed to pick up also for the uh, F-35. With Pratt & Whitney sending out and getting components made in other parts of the world besides the US, is that a requirement of the Australian government in order to have the purchase of the F-35 or it's just something that they put a contract out for and generally and you tended for and got the work? As it stands, uh, the, the Australian government uh, did become a partner in the development of the aircraft uh, back in uh, 2002 and being a, uh, I think it's a, a level three tier uh, partner, that then enabled uh, Australian industry to be able to bid on work. There was no guarantee that we yeah. got work. We had to bid and be globally competitive against all the other. It's, it's a hazard of the trade. <laughs> yeah, it certainly is. So you had to bid? To yeah, so we had to bid uh, against all the other partner nations and whatever we've won, we've won on our own right. Uh, it's uh, obviously the opportunity has been helped along and brought to the table by the Australian government and you know, obviously we're very grateful for that, but uh, it's something we've had to do uh, off our own back. Uh, and you're based down here at Avalon or up in uh, Fisherman's Bend, somewhere like that? Uh, we're based in South Australia. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's the, in the defence state. parochial here in Victoria. We think it all just belongs to us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, Adelaide is the defence state. Yeah. <laughs> that's what they keep telling us over here. Nice. <laughs> Paul, thank you very much and congratulations once again. Right, thank you. I recently had the good fortune to visit the Avalon International Air Show with Stephen Grant. I'll admit I went with a degree of trepidation and some preconceived ideas about what and who I would see. I went on the first open day for the public and the experience can only be described in one term. It was bloody fantastic. Hi, 
I'm Anthony Simmons, and this is The View from the Lounge. Despite a preponderance towards trains, and steam trains specifically, I do like a piece of well-engineered kit, and so was curious to see what the Avalon Air Show had to offer. I've never been to an air show before, and the concept I had in my mind was of something similar to the roulettes flying over the Grand Prix, or the stunt-flying display I witnessed at the Royal Victorian Aero Club's 31st Dawn Patrol and celebration of the 70th anniversary of the Battle of Britain. I could not have been more wrong. The first thing that struck me was the sheer numbers of people streaming into the entrance, and there was no definitive demographic. Young, old, families, groups of mates, a collection of like-minded amateur enthusiasts. Their numbers were almost overwhelming, and like termites, they wanted to devour everything in their path. It had not registered to me that this event occurs every two years, and people make bookings as soon as the last one finishes for the next one. Grant and Steve, quite rightly, made the decision that I should not wander around by myself, and so I followed them like some demented lapdog for most of the day. I did have the chance to break free and see some of the aerial displays, and that's when I think the flying bug bit. I saw aircraft do things upside down, sideways, possibly with a three-point pike with tuck under and a double entendre. This wasn't some bloke going, I've got a plane, it goes up, it lands. This was a full day of push it to the limit. Now, one of the most striking facts was the family atmosphere. In my biased preconceived way, I thought an air show would be the aviation equivalent of what I've seen for trains. Someone, somewhere, has preserved a unique example of a type of locomotive and charges through the nose for a collection of middle-aged anorak wearers with a backpack filled with egg and cress sandwiches and a thermos of tea to observe said locomotive from a reverential distance. I know it's a stereotype and one which I could fill without too much trouble, but Avalon was so different. Parents with young kids on their shoulders, teenagers, the full microcosm of society were all going ooh and ah at both the flying and static displays. Whilst you can't get too up close and personal, it was incredible to see people standing behind the flimsiest of barriers, stating with confidence this was the plane that was flown solo around the world for charity and it was made in Gippsland. Their knowledge, understanding and sheer excitement at Being there was infectious. For several reasons, I don't like noise, loud noise at that, but every breaking of the sound barrier, each simulated bomb drop, the echo of a particular whine as a pilot ramped up his plane to takeoff speed, filled me with absolute joy. The adrenaline, the excitement, the great big grin I had on my face told the whole story. There are more tales to relate from Avalon, but I'll leave them for later episodes. I cannot thank Stephen Grant enough for allowing me the privilege to attend and pointing out the obvious to the ignorant. Gentlemen, for that opportunity, I raise my glass. I know it's been a bit disjointed, but on the day I was lost for words. And that is very rare for the man in the lounge. I should have got into this stuff 20 years ago. And there we go, 
uh, Grant. I'll tell you what, Anthony Simmons, uh, you know, he, he wasn't really sure why he was coming and why we wanted him to come to Avalon, given that he knows nothing about aviation. But I'll tell you what, um, you know, I think he was quite fascinated to be there. Uh, he had a blast, mate. He's been uh, saying again and again many days since Avalon how much fun he had and how much he enjoyed uh, getting to climb through a few aircraft with us. Yes, he keeps rubbing it in about the B-52. In fact, I, you know, I have a sneaking suspicion that might uh, form the theme of the next view from the lounge after this one somehow. He's not going to let us forget that he made it into the pilot seat while we only made it into the co-pilot seat. So anyhow, moving right along, yes. let's check listener mail, shall An- we? Anthony who? <laughs> what? Yes. What wine? Huh? <laughs> I don't know. So listener mail, you say, it's funny, I think I hear the posting. Oh, mate, once again, the midnight postman. <sighs> the man is a machine. I tell you. Well, mate, I, you know, really, as we uh, said at the top of the show, we've had uh, stacks of, uh, you know, really positive and really humbling comments, actually, and uh, we're really happy to get them. So we, we haven't got time to read them all in this show, but we thought we'd uh, just read a selection uh, of the ones that came through. And uh, we'll read one here from uh, Dave Thornton over there in the UK. He says, uh, just uh, briefly going through his email here, he says, uh, Hi, Grant Steve, just like to thank you for your quick cast at the Avalon International Air Show 2011. They were brilliant. You made me feel like I was back at Farnborough and Mildenhall Air Shows in the 80s and 90s. Uh, when I was an avid plane spotter. Uh, it goes on to say that the background noise of the aircraft and all the humming in, of auxiliary units made it have the atmosphere I've only ever experienced at an air show. Just the smells of the burger stands and the aviation fuel were missing. That'd be a great technology if we could get that working, mate. Oh, definitely, mate. That would be awesome. It'd save me having to, having to ship around little vials of kerosene to people and saying, here, open this now. <laughs> Actually, you know, it's it's interesting here that uh, that we that we put this one in listener mail because he says a bit further down that he's actually got a job as a postie. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. David uh, works as a postman in the UK and uh, has been known to start chuckling and laughing while delivering mail, much to the um, intriguing responses from those around him. And uh, I can attest to that, having um, had chuckle attacks and outright laughathons while on public transport. That's always good for a look. And uh, also had a near death experience while uh, listening to a, an Airplane Geeks blooper reel one time while driving. Yeah, that's, that's because we feature heavily in some of those blooper reels, Grant. Yeah, well, there is Oh, that. my goodness, did we really say that? I don't go there. Oh, my God, why did Steve send that over? <laughs> why did Max include it? Wait a minute. <laughs> well, anyway, Dave, uh, plane spotters of, uh, of all kinds are always welcome here at Plane Crazy Down Under, so uh, you know, we're glad you appreciate the show, mate, and we, we, we're happy that we make your day delivering the mail uh, just that little bit more uh, pleasant, so uh, we'll hope we can give you a few more laughs over the coming year. How's that sound for you? Works for me. Absolutely. Okay, the next one comes, uh, another one from overseas, Grant, and uh, this one comes from Mac Coble. Now, uh, he's over in uh, Florida, in Jacksonville, actually. Grant, I hope he listens to us on uh, Flight Time Radio. Well, yeah, I hope he does listen to uh, Flight Time Radio for not just you and I, of course, but for the main hosts of Flight Time Radio. That's Milford and Charlie, our two good friends over there in Jacksonville who do a really good job of a every week live-to-air radio show that also gets put out as a podcast, flighttimeradio.com. Mate, those guys are brave. My hats are off to them. They're doing live reads. No edit later. This is straight to air. Yeah, in fact, probably the most highly edited part of their show would be um, probably our bit, actually. Us, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Anyhow, yeah. anyway, moving along. <laughs> Back to Mac. He says here, uh, yeah, Mac says, I've really enjoyed uh, hearing you on the Airplane Geeks and now I've ventured uh, virtually back down under. Uh, he says, uh, the air shows are great. Hey, 
<laughs> we have one annually here in uh, Jacksonville, Florida. I try not to miss them. Great info, interviews, uh, the mates and friends from the continent country that is down under, but ever on top of our list of friends in peace and war. And he said, goes on to say here that his son is a, uh, an, a uh, an H60R driver. Oh, cool. uh, watched him grow up in as my right seat, and now he's in the left seat in weather. Go Navy, and uh, yeah, absolutely go Navy. Well, boy, uh, talk about being in the military at the moment. It, uh, it's not a quiet time. That much is certain, mate. Uh, they're getting a lot of work all around the world in the uh, in the military for uh, both Australia, the US and uh, the UK, many other countries. Absolutely. Now we did uh, do some recording. The uh, US Navy did send an MH60R across, a Romeo. Uh, we did film some video. Our video guy uh, Steve Pam is uh, madly editing that down at the moment and we will pop that out on our YouTube channel uh, as soon as it's ready and uh, once we've done that then we'll release the audio as well because we're conscious of the fact that uh, not everybody uh, is able to watch the videos and uh, you know we're not aiming to become a video podcast here but uh, we did like the way that it, uh, some of the videos came out, Grant, and uh, uh, just looking at some of the survey responses, actually, in fact, one person said, I want more video and perhaps even talking heads video. Well, um, yeah, I, I would have thought if people have seen my, my talking head on the videos we've got, they probably wouldn't want to see it too much we more than they do. we for radio. <laughs> but, uh, hey, mate, I think we can do a bit of talking heads. Hang on, just uh, right about here. Do you reckon that's what he was meaning? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Could be. I love talking heads, actually. Anyway. Yeah, no, awesome group. Okay, one more. This one's also from overseas in Georgia. Just that's, a bit up from Florida. Yeah, just a bit, yeah, just a bit across. On the way to Arkansas, so it can't be all that bad. Uh, this, is, <laughs> this is from Bruce Dickerson. Bruce says, hey, guys, just finished listening to your week's work at Avalon. You did a tremendous job. The interviews were fascinating. You provided an incredible insight uh, to the staging of an international air show. Now I'm wondering if there's any way I could make it to Avalon 2013. Uh, Grandy says here at the age of 56, uh, he says, I'm too old to have a midlife crisis and run away to the air show. Ah, oh, rubbish, Bruce, you can come. come on. Yeah, no, be brave. We'll let you. Anytime is a time for a midlife crisis. Heck, <laughs> I think I'm getting ready for my second one. Absolutely. He says, uh, you know, he's thinking he might just say what the heck and come on down. Well, we would endorse that. And Bruce, if you come here, look us up. We'll look after you, mate. Oh, he says his friends already think he's nuts for getting his PPL last year. So, well, that is an awesome job, man. You know. Damn straight. Come on down and you keep going. Just keep getting out there and flying and really have a great time and Show your friends that it uh, doesn't matter how old you are, you can get stuck into it and have a blast. Yep, absolutely. So uh, cheers, Bruce, and uh, thanks very much for writing in. And uh, yeah, keep us posted, Bruce, uh, you know, on the way you're going with your PPL. It's, um, you know, it, it just goes to show that, you know, you're never too old if it's something that you want to do. That's one of the things we like to do here is to encourage people to get into aviation. In fact, you know, I'd like to encourage myself to get back uh, flying a bit more often than I do, Grant. But uh, Well, come on, get out there, Steve. Come on, come on. Absolutely. Well, we'll see how we go. We'll see how we go. <laughs> I'm getting there, mate. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Excellent. Anyway, so yeah, many more comments, uh, lots of positive comments, uh, and once again, we we thank you all for uh, to, for writing in. And uh, boy, Evelyn, it was uh, it was a big undertaking, but uh, boy, we had a ball. Yeah, it was just great. Really loved it. As we said at the end of QuickCast number six, at the end of the show, there was a huge list of people we said thank you to, and uh, we really appreciate everyone's efforts to help get us there and help make us uh, welcome um, with the uh, various crews and equipment and companies and so on. It was just absolutely brilliant. Absolutely zonked by Monday afternoon after going back down to watch the aircraft leave with the uh, media posse down there, but wouldn't have missed it for the world. Yeah, absolutely. that was that was a bonus, actually, that extra photo session on the Monday morning. Now, I couldn't make that, but uh, uh, you and Adam 
Adam went down there to uh, to get some photos. And uh, we should just mention too, Grant, that uh, my brother Adam, who is uh, you know the official PCDU photographer, uh, one of them, uh, him and Stephen Pam, of course, is the other one. He's actually uh, started up a Flickr stream. If you haven't uh, gone across to our photos on Flickr, where we were fiddling around with some gallery software, but it never sort of really uh, took off. Yeah, so it didn't work for so us. we've we've gone with the crowd and we're on Flickr now. So you can go to uh, Flickr. That's F L I C K R dot com slash photos slash PCDU. Uh, if you go there, you'll find our photo stream. Uh, currently, as we record this, there's uh, a bit over 80 photos in there. And uh, Adam, in between, uh, you know, <laughs> he's actually renovating his house at the moment. So uh, he's got a lot of time to process the photos. But uh, yeah, there's some great photos that were taken on the special photographers only bonus morning on the Monday, uh, including photos of the Raptor departing. So uh, yeah, that's right. Excellent stuff. Oh, it was absolutely awesome. And uh, for those of you who think that a B1B going past at full afterburner is pretty uh, or inspiring and an amazing sound feel, etc. Try two of them, one after the other. Yep. Absolutely amazing. Yep, awesome. Uh, I think as we said in our flight time radio segment, not only the loudest aircraft I've ever heard, uh, I think you said it was the loudest aircraft you've ever felt. And the way it That's correct. Grant. Absolutely, Grant. And the other thing I wanted to mention about the Flickr stream too is that, uh, you know, it's open for everybody. If you've got some photos that you'd like to share with the rest of the uh, PCDU community, uh, you can also pop them into uh, into this Flickr group and uh, share it around. And um, Or if you've got already photos on Flickr, I think there's a function where you can share those photos with the photos in our group group and uh, you know that's the idea here so that everybody can enjoy everybody else's photos and we think that's a really good way to do it so uh, once again that's flickr.com slash photos slash pcdu or even easier just head to our website and uh, hit the flicker button there on the right hand side good stuff cool okay so that uh, moves us on to shout outs now grant we've got a couple of quick shout outs before we sign off this episode yeah that's right we've got a few shout outs and uh, first couple of shout outs are from the uh, tarmac at avalon air show uh, we've got Gary Towett, who acted as my escort when I was uh, approaching the uh, air crew at the KC-135. They'd recently moved from way the heck down in the southern end of the uh, runway, uh, colloquially known as Siberia, and had taxied their way up and been parked on the uh, the loop section of uh, one of the taxiways. So they were in the process of organizing uh, boarding and um, boarding and so on. They had some of the RAAF and airshow guards to uh, keep people uh, a little bit of a distance from the aircraft while they sorted things out. So uh, Gary was there. We've known Gary for quite a while. I've worked with him on the tarmac and uh, he's also caught up with us a few times at uh, the RAAF Museum at Point Cook. And uh, so he happened to be there. So he escorted me around for a little bit while we sorted things out with the air crew and waited for Steve and Adam to arrive. And then he was also by fluke over at the Warbirds tarmac on the Sunday when I was taking my family and a few friends around. The guys from Tamora and a few of the other um, Warbird pilots plus Timbo on the tarmac had given me approval to uh, take them on a bit of a uh, behind the scenes tour. And uh, yeah, that was absolutely brilliant to be able to do that. So thanks heaps to Gary, who was able to uh, help out by shadowing me and uh, stopping anyone from thinking, hang on, who's this guy who's just walking out into the tarmac? Yeah, for sure, Gary. And, uh, you know, it's funny. We, every time we turned around, we turned, if we were out there somewhere near the keyhole or out there on the tarmac somewhere, you turn around and there he'd be again. Uh, boys, if you just go over there, you'll see this aircraft coming in. Or, you know, he was uh, very well connected. He knew what was going on, had his finger on the pulse. Yep. And it was probably just as well when you talk about the KC-135 ramp because I'd uh, sort of, you know, try to wade my way through the crowds yeah. and uh, we couldn't find you anywhere. So uh, he found me on the phone. Hey, what, Grant? Where are you? What? 
what? You where? <laughs> yeah, Gary helped guide you into us as well. That was that was great. So mega thanks, Gary. Very appreciate that. And uh, the other person in a similar role was Mozman from SRS Photography. He was out there working on tarmac uh, over near the, um, well, it used to be the Cockies Cage, but now it's known as Murcat Manor which is the uh, control tower space that they set up right on the flight line. And uh, Mozman was uh, working as uh, one of the escorts there. I was heading over to interview Nikolai, that's the aerobatic pilot, not my son, and uh, Bob, Kent, and Chris from the uh, Jelly Belly and the rocket-powered glider teams. So uh, Mozman was my escort, and when he realized that Adam, our photographer, was way the heck over the other side of the taxiway and busy getting a lot of photos of aircraft, he uh, pulled out his camera and started getting some great shots. So uh, thanks heaps, Mozman. Really appreciate that, mate. Yeah, absolutely, Grant. We'll have to get those into into the uh, website uh, pretty soon. He takes a good photo, Mozman. Oh, yeah, and he's uh, given us um, approval to use them on our website and our Flickr stream and so on. So uh, we'll be loading them up. You'll know which ones are his because they'll be tagged as copyright by Mozman. Absolutely, and uh, his company is SRS Photography. So you can uh, Google search that, folks, and uh, Grant will find a link and pop that in the show notes. Sounds good to me. Absolutely, and uh, the other shout-out, of course, as we mentioned at the top, is to Ian Kershaw. He's up there in Calgary in Canada, always freezing half to death up there. <laughs> But uh, he was kind enough to, uh, you know, uh, help support us here by uh, putting together this survey. And, uh, yeah, folks, once again, if you could just take a few minutes, pop over to our website, uh, playingcrazydownunder.com, and click on the survey button at the top there and uh, just uh, take a few minutes to fill it out. It is uh, all about, um, you know, not only getting you to say nice things to us or otherwise, but it's also about trying to find out uh, what it is that you'd like to hear on the show uh, coming up. Now, we've already had quite a few suggestions, people uh, wanting more GA and and, uh, RA, for instance. Which is great because we're trying to get more of that anyhow yep absolutely and uh some other suggestions uh which we'll take on board now we can't guarantee that we'll be able to do everything that you ask but uh you know we, we do our best here and we're basically a two-man operation so <laughs> we, we try our hardest to get things but yeah ga and ra is uh, something that we've really set a goal for this year we, we sort of figure like we we do focus a lot on military and the airlines uh, but uh, ga is really where my heart lies i'm not an airline pilot so uh, we really want to focus on that a bit more this year and uh, yeah there'll be some more news on that coming up two or three episodes from now Ooh, definitely some big news well folks that just about wraps it up for episode 60 of the show thanks very much for listening and as always we certainly hope you enjoyed it we'll be back really soon with some more avalon content on playing crazy down under but until then just remember this it's what's down under that counts folks you've been listening to playing crazy down under hosted by steve visher and grant mcherran show notes links to our forum facebook fan page youtube channel and grant and steve's own blogs can be found on our website www.playingcrazydownunder.com or keep up with our Twitter handle of PCDU. Comments or feedback can be left on our website or email us at playingcrazydownunder at gmail.com. If you'd like to help with the ongoing production of the show, feel free to assist via the donate button on the website. Any contributions are most gratefully appreciated. Incidental music and sound effects are courtesy of soundsnap.com and title music is You Name It 5 by Brian Simpson. This has been a Southern Skies online media podcast. The kind folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. 
As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. Thanks, folks.